Well, it's certainly good to be back here with you today. It has been right at around three years. I think it was late February, three years ago that I was here. And that was a special, memorable time for me and for my family. The day before I left to fly here, my father-in-law was in a motorcycle accident. And so I was trying to decide whether I should come or stay home. And it was, it was challenging for the family. He was in a coma. So I came and just you know, got daily reports from home. And I just remember so many of you praying and talking to me every night about how that was going and checking in. Some of you followed up afterwards about that. And we even changed some of the lessons that week. We turned it into, we did praying in the Holy Spirit and the perfect prayer plan and hit some things that I needed. And I was very thankful that you were able to sort of adapt with me on that. So I remember that very clearly. We went home and he passed away about a week after I got home. So obviously that's been really difficult on my wife and family, but three years have passed and you know how it is. You got to take your focus and turn it towards the family that you have living in front of you. And we've tried to bind together and do that. I also think about you guys kind of all the time because uh, I have this journal thing that I do in the mornings and I'm pretty sure about five mornings a week, I write the name Kristen Allen down. I've been praying for her for months. She's here today and I know there are others to pray for as well, but she just... We made a connection, her family and myself last time, and just continuing to pray. So I think about you guys a lot, and I'm just grateful for the chance to be here. I have a few things to share with you to get us going. Some of what I'll share in this first 10 minutes or so will set up a lot of what we'll be doing this week. You're encouraged to open your Old Testaments to Psalm 127. Psalm number 127 will be the early reading for us as we jump around a bit today. I think you'll notice in the class, after Psalm 127, almost all these passages are super familiar. I did not want to pick obscure passages to challenge you with today. In the class session, I hope you'll see, I chose very familiar passages that I want you to apply in a very unique and special way. So hopefully we'll pull all that together. While you're getting to Psalm 127, here is our theme for the week. I can sum it up in two words. Generational faith. You will hear that in every time we meet today, tonight, and all throughout the week, and I can explain it in this way. This is how I would explain generational faith to you. I'm pretty sure that everyone who is looking at me right now, every person in this auditorium wants to get to heaven. Getting to heaven and being with God forever is your number one goal. Have I gotten anywhere near the bullseye on that? I thought so. But it's not just you and me. All of the children in those classrooms back there. Do you have kids back there? Do you have grandkids back there? Nieces and nephews? We want to get to heaven and we want all of them to get to heaven. We want every single one of them in heaven. And to be honest with you, I'm not prepared to accept anything less than that. And you ought not either. We know all of the statistics, and I could berate you with those, of children who fall away from the Lord and the devastation upon the church, and I'm just downright tired of it. And I believe that if we're careful in our growth in the Scriptures, we can give our children a real fighting chance at lifelong faith. We're here to talk about building generational faith that will last. I'll put it to you this way. I'm 41 years old. I got one of those bucket lists. Aren't you, you turn 40, you're supposed to make a bucket list, right? I've got it. It's got one thing on it. There's one thing. I've never written down more than just one thing. I have four children, age 18, 16, 8, and 6, and I want to see those four kids serve God. And that's it. I don't care if I travel to Europe. I don't care if I learn a foreign language. I don't care if I finally figure out this guitar thing. It just kills my fingers. It doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. My kids serving God matters. 
I've got to know this morning that you too, as a grandparent, a parent, you have that kind of resolve as well. If you have raised your children and they're all serving God, I would imagine that's the number one treasure in your life. Like that's the thing. The best thing. I ask you what's going right in your life. You tell me about your kids. And if your kids have drifted away, if even one of your children have drifted away, chances are you'd probably give anything, everything, your own life in order for them to come back to Christ. Is that an accurate statement for you? So look, we can't talk too much about the ones who aren't here today. They're making their decisions. They've, they've gone on their own way and Lord willing, we'll draw them back. But what if, think about the Oak Mountain Church. What if every person in the room right now looking at me and all of the children in the back, everybody who's here, what if this entire next generation remain, not, not 50%, not 80%, all of them remain faithful. What would it mean for this church 20 years from now? Can you even imagine it? I wonder if Christians can even imagine it anymore. I think we can do better. So we're going to talk about that generational faith today, and I'm excited to do it, and all throughout the week. But this morning, we're going to focus in on one particular element. If you're really interested in giving your children the best possible shot, or drawing them back to God, or building that kind of sustenance, then we need to focus in upon the family. Do you understand that your marriage, your family, what happens in your home is the number one most impressionable thing that your children experience in their lives? Yeah, it's great to bring your, your children to church and Bible classes are awesome and memorizing Bible verses, but the church experience will never have the impact of what happens inside the home. Not even the things that happen at school, no matter how many hours that they're there, will hold a candle to what they're learning when they observe their parents' marriage. We're going to talk about that in our worship hour. They're learning all kinds of things from observing the relationship between mom and dad. The way that parents choose to discipline children, the way you interact with your kids, the way you challenge your kids, you're teaching them what the church experience is supposed to be like. We're going to talk about that today. Turns out the family is the training ground for Christianity. I mean, think about this. I'll get ahead of myself a little bit. When we talk about the relationship between Christ and the church, it is reflected in the relationship between whom? A wife or a husband and a wife. And so you're teaching your children, look, check out this husband-wife relationship. Watch the way mom and dad interact. Check us out because this is what it's like with Christ and the church. Do you feel comfortable saying that? That's what our marriage is supposed to be showing them. When we discipline our kids and we train them how to follow a certain way and the way the rules work, Hebrews 12 says we're actually showing them what their relationship with God is supposed to be like. I'll mention this some tonight and tomorrow night, but I think there are some parents who send their kids out to college at 18, and it's like the last thing they tell them when they leave is, hey, by the way, basically none of the way we did things here is the way it works with God, okay? So good luck making that transition. Seriously, we can do better. But it starts in the home. Psalm 127 is a passage that you will see referenced quite often. In Psalm 127, let's read the first two verses. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early or retire late or eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Now we're going to pick up on this tonight with the children. We're going to talk about raising kids tonight. But I want you to note that it doesn't even really matter how hard you work. I work so hard on my family. 
I worked the extra hours. I provided for them. I worked diligently and we don't have faith. It doesn't matter how hard you work. Do you see that verse 2? It doesn't matter. If God is not building the house. We have to work God's way. It's when we let God do the building and we're just the ones carrying it out. Because you hear that a lot. Men, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, men carry a little bit of pride around with them. Just occasionally, I've run into one or two men in my life carry a little bit of pride. This idea that I'm working hard and I'm providing and I'm doing it right and this is not my fault. It doesn't matter how hard you're working unless you're carrying out in your home the work of God, the things that God wants us to work on. So that's kind of where we're going to go today. If you'd like to head over to Ephesians 4, we'll be jumping around a bit in the class, and that's our next passage. But I need to explain a little bit about the way this works. As we jump in on family fundamentals for the Bible class this morning, we need to make sure that we don't make any pronoun mistakes. Now, I think if I ask you what would make the faith in your family stronger, whether we're talking to our young people or parents or grandparents or whoever, what would make it stronger? It's really easy to use a pronoun set that involves her, him, if my wife would, if my husband would, if my teenager would, if mom and dad would. It's really easy to identify the problems with other people and, mark this down, a complete waste of time. Like you just wasted your time, my time, your oxygen, the whole thing. Everything got wasted. Complaining about what other people need to change is a wasted endeavor in making things better. So we're tossing that out today and you knew we would do that. I'm not going to take the next 30 minutes and tell you what's wrong with the person sitting next to you. That wouldn't be wise. Here's what we often do, though. We speak in terms of us, the collective pronouns. We need to improve our marriage. In our home, we need more Bible study. My kids and I, we need to find a better way so that we can connect ourselves together. That is also a lot of wasted words. You know, things don't work that way, right? We don't just get better. This person gets better, and that person gets better, and the sum total of two individuals making progress come together to make real progress. That's what we're going to focus on, not the you pronoun set, not the we us stuff, but something else. As we get into that, I just want to tell you a brief story. Some of you guys know, thanks for your encouragement, that we do a little podcast, the Excel Still More podcast. You're going to recognize quite a few things this week if you check that out. But there was a guy in Europe, a doctor named Ignaz Semmelweis. You ever heard the story of old Ignaz? Ignaz. He was a brilliant doctor in the 1840s in Europe, and he ran two hospitals. One was a doctor's hospital where all the most brilliant minds did their work. And next to it was a nurse's hospital. But both of those hospitals were responsible for the birthing of babies. And something really weird was happening. The mortality rate among women in Europe at that time was 5%. Isn't that sad? 1 in 20 women died in childbirth. And the nurse's hospital was right on the number. 1 in 20 women died. But the doctor's hospital were brilliant Ignaz and his staff of professionals was losing 18% of the women. They were almost four times as likely to die in a doctor's hospital as with nurses. And it drove him crazy. So he tried to fix it. How do you think he tried to fix it? He fixed everything around him. 
He changed the paint and pictures on the wall. He changed the clergy who visited both hospitals. He matched the carpet. He matched the supporting staff. He changed out the instruments. He did everything he could around him to make it work, and women kept dying. Until one day, far too late, after way too many women had died, he finally asked the question with which he should have began. Is it me? And it was. It turns out, Ignez, you know, they didn't know a lot about germs back in 1844. Ignez would go down to the, by the way, the doctor's hospital was the only place where they did autopsies. He would go down and perform an autopsy on a dead body and then go deliver a baby and the woman would die of germs and disease. It was when he looked at his own hands and said, am I the one? Will my change make a difference? And Ignez changed one person. Who did Ignez change? Himself. He started washing his hands, and all of a sudden the rates changed and ended up not only getting them to 3% in their hospital, but he passed it over to the next hospital, and everybody got better. Do you notice with me? Everybody got better when he changed himself. Now, there's a really sad ending to that story. I don't remember if I recorded this in the episode. But he went over to all of his fellow doctors. Remember that pride thing I mentioned earlier? He started calling all the doctors he knew. He reached out to every doctor he could find. And he said, look, guys, if you'll start washing your hands, you can save lives. Those doctors thought he was nuts. No matter what needs to be changed, it's not me. In fact, they put him in a mental hospital and he died there. It's a really sad story. Sorry I told it. And it wasn't until about 20 or 30 years later that the doctors were forced to understand that they're the ones causing it. And they had to change Here's what I want to say. Listen, even if you're the better one in the marriage or the strongest Christian in the house, I guarantee you the only effective change you can create is when you grow as a person and a Christian and that begins to have an effect on the people around you. You don't like what your spouse is doing? Start changing in a way that affects your spouse. You don't like the, the attitude your parents have? Why are they always coming at me like that? You can't tell them to change, but there's some things that you can do that I guarantee will alter the look on their face. Personal. Let me give you this one other example and we'll jump in. Look in Ephesians 4. This time we're in the scripture here. And you know in Ephesians 4, we're not talking about the family here, but we're talking about the church But the principles are very similar in terms of what makes your family stronger. It increases the chance of faithfulness and the same in the church. I'm talking about maybe around verse 16. We'll just pick up there. You know this text. In Ephesians 4, in verse 16, it talks about speaking the truth in love, verse 15, and growing, verse 15, into Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, we have eldership here. And Bob preaches here, and there are elders back where I am, and I preach there. And we don't want to alter the Scripture, okay? We never want to take our pen in there and strike out words and replace it with other words. But I think if elders and preachers had the right to do that, and they could actually get you to alter biblical text, they would ask you to hold a pen in your hand and look at verse 16, and where it says, what every joint supplies, write what I supply. According to the proper working of, strike out each individual part and put me. That's the big secret in the church that we can't get everyone to see and we want them to see. If each person would say, how can I be more effective in this church? 
How can I be a better encourager? It's really easy to say, that person over there doesn't come to church enough. Or that person over there thinks they're better than everybody. I mean, anybody can do that. Any fool can do that. And But what we do, what we do in the church is we speak collectively, like, our church needs to get better at this. Love it when people say that. And by love it, I mean don't love it. We need to become, love this. We need to become more evangelistic, don't we? Okay, how's that work? How about you go hand a card to someone and invite them to church? Guess what just happened? We became more evangelistic. You see, it's true in every case. And so as we kind of go quickly through the rest of this stuff, I want you for the next, and now what's going to be, what, you gave me two hours, one hour and 40 minutes. The next 30, 20 minutes is just going to be, what about me? What's my part? And look, I have to counsel very difficult situations. I have to counsel people where they have marriage problems and it is 99.9% that guy's fault and like a tiny percent her fault. And she's frustrated. And I have to tell her the same thing. Look, you still have a part to play. Play it better. Play it more wisely. Grow in your faith and it will change the dynamic. So here we go. Three things I want to share with you and we'll do it fairly quickly. Super familiar passages all the way through. It's not about unique passages. It's about personal application only. Number one is, of course, just personal faithfulness. This is one of the most overlooked ideas here. You think that if you want to become a better husband, you have to learn how to communicate with your wife better. Well, that's important. But first, what is your relationship like with God? If each person, teenager, parent, grandparent, and otherwise, if you just took the next couple of months of your life and focused on nothing else but your connection to God, you would see remarkable things happen with everybody you know. Like every single relationship would start to change. And you'd wonder, well, did they hear the same sermon I heard? Have they been studying the same stuff? No. They're reacting to you. They're affected by you. So I'll go ahead and give you all four points here, and then we'll read a few Bible verses. That'd be okay? When we talk about personal faithfulness, I'm asking you about how much you love God. And do you love God first? Is your love for God the first thing on your mind and the first priority and only priority in your life? Are you communing with God? By that we mean two directions. When you're anxious, Philippians 4. When you're nervous, when it's hard, when there's confrontation in your home, what do you do about that? Let me tell you what Christians do. They pray about that. They're anxious for nothing. They divide their mind, Philippians 4, 6, over no thing. But they go to God in thanksgiving and they proclaim His name and they find their way. And then they open the Scripture and they read. What's your prayer and Bible study life like? I don't want to become one of those rude, you know, counselor, preacher guys who come. I try to listen and be kind. But I have shortcutted some of these conversations when everybody's complaining about everything's going on, wishing everybody else was better, frustrated that they can't get better. I think I'm just going to start with, is God number one in your life? Tell me about your prayer life. Tell me about your Bible study. Are you doing the stuff that God has directly commanded you to do? And are the people around you more Christ-like because they just spent 10 minutes with you? If we'll work on that, you say, what does that have to do with the family? What does that have to do with generational faith? How's that going to help my kids in the back classroom grow up as Christians? This may do more for them. Right here, simple list, daily growth. This may do more for them than any other thing you try to do. People ask me sometimes, I've I've got four kids. I don't know how the other two are going to turn out. You know, they're a little interesting. But so far, I've got an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old I'm pretty proud of. My 18-year-old, a girl, she's doing 
doing some things I'm really proud of. And my son, if you got, you know, we have live streaming stuff. You can check us out. He's been doing a little bit of preaching. You know, people like him better because he goes a lot shorter than I do. So he gets more requests than me. He's growing. He's 16, but he's growing. And when I'll go travel to, to meetings, you know, and spend time with people, like we hang out, you know, well, well, tell me what you do with your kids to help them grow in faith. And I think here's what people expect the preacher's going to say, Bob. Well, we get up at four in the morning and we read Leviticus and we memorize the entire New Testament and we sit down at night and we handwrite the book of Proverbs in Hebrew <laughs> backwards. <laughs> and that's the only way you turn out kids like that. We don't do any of that stuff. I mean, yeah, we have our Bible studies occasionally. We always do our Bible class work. We make sure we do that and we stay responsible. We're focused more on being Christians instead of sort of pointing at Christianity and telling them to stare at it. I would just note a couple of these verses, if you don't mind. I just want to pick up a couple of these. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2. I was going to read for the first verse, of course. I was just going to read Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus said to love God, right? Love him with all your heart, with all your mind with all your soul and with all your strength. Think about those things. The sermon in and of itself. I think about God. I feel something for God. I want to be eternally with God, and I'm willing to do some things to get it. Do you love God like that? It's more powerful than anything else. Secondly, I would just ask you to go here to this text. I'm asking you to head over to, uh, let's see, 2 Timothy. Let's go to 1 Timothy instead. 1 Timothy 4, I think, will be good. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Of course, 2 Timothy 2 talks about being ready to speak up for the word and being a diligent student of the word. And while I know that, that he's talking to a younger man here, I just, verse 16 jumps out at me. He tells him to pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now listen, I want to talk to parents a minute and older brothers and sisters. Look at this text again. You make sure that you are persevering. You make sure, verse 13 and 14, that you are reading the Scriptures. And here's what happens. If you are communing with God, if you're praying and you're reading, then the people around you will be drawn to praying and reading. My wife, uh, she doesn't post a lot of social media stuff. But she posted a little picture the other day of the two little kids sitting there in the morning kind of reading their Bibles. You know, it was perfect little, you know, just accidentally kind of worked out. We snap a picture, you know. And we get to church and people are like, how'd you get that to work? Did you, did you threaten them for breakfast? Did you set out a schedule? Do you have a bunch of boxes you check on the refrigerator and all of a sudden they started doing it? Did you use the reward system or the punishment system? The reward system or the punishment system to read the scriptures? I'll tell you what happened. I made a personal decision about eight months ago to just sit down in the morning and read the word while the kids woke up. Didn't say a word to them, except they couldn't turn on TV. Just be a Bible reader. And, you know, your son, he looks at you and he's going, well, dad's reading, the, that's, dad's reading the scripture over there. And so he pulls out a little book, you know. And my daughter at the time, I don't even think she could read well. She just kind of picked up a book. Kind of. What's going on there? You change, they change. You grow, they grow. That's the only way it works. This whole telling, pushing thing. I mean, think about even Jesus. I could talk all day about this. Jesus instructs you to do things. But before he ever told you to do anything, he went out and did all those things, didn't he? He's never asked you to do anything they didn't already do first. And from that, the effect came. And so I would just have you look at these things, these other verses like 1 John about obeying his commandments. I would just talk to dads a minute. I, I is one, so I'm kind of connected to this field here of being a dad and a husband and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, if there are real commands that the Bible has made in your life 
and you're not keeping those commands, that's like the only thing you need to be focused on right now. You say, no, I got stuff going on with my kids. Got stuff going on with my grandkids. Got stuff going on I need to work on. Now forget about it. You probably need to just focus on that right now. If you have a pornography problem, even though nobody knows about it, you really just need to focus on that right now. you got to beat that. Somebody will find out about that, or it will affect your relationship. If you're missing worship services, though the Scripture teaches you to be at work, just focus on that right now. You obeying commands is going to do enormous things for everyone else as well. And then, of course, Jesus talked about it in Matthew 5. Quick look, Matthew 5. Quick look at Matthew 5. You know the verse well. I'm talking about this last thing reflects its brightness. But I think that sometimes we read Matthew 5 and we think about evangelism to the world. I was raised under the mentorship of a preacher named Steve Fontenot in Humble, Texas. That's a suburb outside of, of Houston. And he told me, if not a hundred times, he told me, do not save the world and lose your family. Do not save the world and lose your family. Do not over and over and over again. And he taught me to look at these verses differently. He taught me to look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp, put it under a basket. But on the lampstand, it gives light to all who are in these house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You could replace world, verse 14, with family. You could replace men, verse 16, with your family because that's where it's got to start. That's where it's got to start. I'm just going to say something honest really quickly, if that's okay. I've been dishonest so far. Do you even understand how many times we preach sermons like this? We, we preach sermons like this. Especially in meetings where you're meeting people for first, second, third time. And some guy in his early 70s walks up. And he says, I sure wish I'd have heard that 40 years ago. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. He probably did. I'm pretty sure I haven't said anything new yet. He probably did. Folks, you know what makes it work. Work it. And it starts with, is it me? Let me give you a couple other things to think about here. It starts with just personal faithfulness, relationship with God. I'll say one more thing about this. I said something rude to a guy one time. Only rude thing I've said that day. There's a guy coming to church. He's coming to church week after week, coming to church, raising his daughter, not a Christian, wouldn't obey the gospel. And I said, you know, in a sermon, not directly to him, I said, if you don't, if you won't obey the gospel, you don't really love your kids. How many of you think he really liked that? He didn't like that at all. He met me in the back, and he took that as a personal slight. He got angry with me, and I moved away because he was scary. I did move away, not because he was scary. I visited that church about three years later. He was a Christian by then. He took me aside, and he said, I'm sorry. I didn't like the way you said it, but the number one thing I could do to help my daughter serve God is to serve God. I like that. I like that a lot. And that applies to every relationship that we have, parenting and otherwise. Here's a second thing. Second thing is personal responsibility. So I'm going to go ahead and put several things up here, wherever you are in this. We've got respecting your parents for our, for our young people. We've got the idea of how you raise your children, which we'll talk about tonight, and marriage and all this. You know all this stuff. Personal responsibility. What is my role in this marriage? How can I make an effective and absolute difference? And I just have to tell you guys, I'm excited about this. It's all new kind of stuff for me to preach in a series. Because of this Excel Still More business last year, if you listen to any of the episodes that we put out last year, not a single one of them told you to go tell someone else, someone else to change. All I tried to do this last year is just work on this really sort of ugly mound of clay I've been carrying around. 
And it turns out every time I'd get one thing about my life in order, it would change the way I interacted with the people around me. That's what I want you to see, that the responsibility of a relationship means I have to own my part in it. Let me just go to Ephesians. We'll take a look at some of this. We'll be back in it in a little while more deeply in the sermon, but you know, let's just talk about this marriage thing. Love your wife and, and help your husband a little bit. Under love your wife, you know you're right there in verse 25. Husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. And he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. So watch this. He, he sacrificed something of himself because he wanted to see her get better. I'm going to say that again. He sacrificed something of himself so that he could see her get better that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. In fact, his personal choices were to assist the other person. Gentlemen, I'm going to move on, but I just need you to understand that your actions affect her attitude. If you'll just take that little phrase with you this week, it changes everything. Turns out the stuff I say matters. She's not just moody. You said something rude. And she's reacting, that kind of thing. And we're going to talk about that today, because even if somebody says something rude, you've got to respond in the right way. We're going to get to that in a little bit. The diffuser of the situation. I don't mean essential oils. In 1 Peter 3, look with me. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it goes the other way as well, right? 1 Peter chapter 3, even if your husband's not a Christian, ladies, he's not even a child of God in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so you're like, how do I get him to change it? How do I get him to see it? I'm not going to berate him. I'm not going to use volume and teaching. I mean, you know, a wife trying to instruct a man. How's that ever gone? But I'll tell you what I can do. I can just be a Christian. Verse 1, and even if he's disobedient, he may be one without a word. By what? Her working on her. She's just working on her behavior, her attitude, her chasteness, verse 2, her respect, her adornment, her heart, verse 4, her quiet spirit, her godliness. She could win over the whole family without telling them to do anything. By the way, that's like next level elite parenting. I'm not there yet. I'm working on it, okay? We're all working on it. Where you don't even really tell them. You just create like this energy vacuum and they don't even know why, but they're like drawn into it. That's what we're going for. But it starts with the, the person at the lead doing it right and showing them the way to go. It's so crucial. Raising your children as well. We're going to look at this more in a little while tonight, so I won't get into it too deeply. But it turns out that my actions, this is a big one for me, my actions create their character. My, listen, mom and dad, my actions dictate their character. I've read those old studies about, you know, give somebody a child under the age of five and just tell me what profession you want them raised to be. And I can shape them to go that road in almost every case. Why? Because what I teach them, show them, put in their heads and tell them is important will shape their value system for the rest of their lives. That's what we want and need to do. And let's go ahead and talk to the youngins for just a minute. The youth among us. Look in Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians chapter 6. I think this goes both ways. We've talked about parents quite a bit so far, but I want to turn it just a little bit. In Ephesians chapter 6, when it talks about children, it says to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And we're going to get into this really heavy tomorrow night, but especially we've got a lot of young people here today who are Christians, who have obeyed the gospel. You've signed on to some serious stuff when you went down to that water. Let me just tell you. You signed up for some very mature thinking. And part of that thinking is, I will start to operate in connection with the Lord. Everything I do now needs to be connected with what pleases God and what is right, verse 1, including honoring your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. 
This is all I want the young people to understand. You have to take responsibility. If you're 15, 13, 12, 14, 40. My parents live close to me now. I'm 41. I still have to remind myself of this. I have to be able to take responsibility for the way I interact with my parent is going to dictate their face, their attitude, and what they say in return. I can't just speak rudely to them. And because she's my mom, she's supposed to just take it. That's not what the Bible says at all. I need to take responsibility for change. If you want to think about it this way, my wife and oldest daughter have gotten really good at this. Sometimes I call them master manipulators, though I've been told that's a negative term. They have a way of approaching me. Does any man in the room know what I'm talking about? They have a way of approaching me, and, it, and they, they have the most unreasonable request. And I black out for a minute, and when I wake up, I've like given them all the money in my wallet. Or I was laying on the couch watching football, and now all of a sudden I'm like mowing the lawn. How did I get out of here? What, who, who, who put me here? There's a way that they understand that they can bring a certain spirit to it. A certain attitude. A certain kindness or service. And I am powerless to fight back. And I wouldn't want to. That's the amazing part of it. Like, I'm glad I'm mowing the lawn. What just happened? It's a reaction. Take responsibility for causes, and you will begin to see better effects. Let me give you one more thought here. We don't have long. A little bit of time here, though. The second thing has to do with this. It has to do with personal responsibility. And then I just have to be really clear with you. Our ability to repent... Our ability to admit, if you're 13 and you go to your parents and you admit, look, I've had the bad attitude about this. Something really amazing happens. This thing called compassion starts happening that you thought was impossible. How many of you have ever lived under this general rule that whenever you thought you were going to get in terrific trouble, you kind of didn't? And whenever you thought that it was no big deal, the whole building caught fire. Does anybody know that? That's like the way life works. You ever wonder why life, why does life work like that? When I think it's going to be the end of the world, it's not. And when I think nobody should care, everybody flips out. You know why? Guess what the variable is in that? It's my attitude. If my attitude is I've messed this thing up and I deserve to be punished for this and I deserve to be in trouble for this and I can't believe I did this. What does everybody else do? They bring the situation down and they forgive and they work with you. But if you come in like I didn't do anything wrong here. This is not a big deal. You've triggered a disciplinary response, triggering disciplinary responses. What we want to do is we want to learn the concept of penitence. And of course, it starts right here. If you leave here today, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about with the family today. And if you're like me, you're going to leave here thinking, okay, I've got a few things I need to think about. There are a few things I need to spend more time on, whatever I am in the family and however I influence. But can I just encourage you, 1 John 1, please, can I just encourage you first, maybe above all else, to just go to God with this? Go to God and talk to Him about what you want to change in you, about what it is in your life that needs to be better. Look in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, oh, we pick up there in about verse 5 would be great. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Great word. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I want that in my family, church, everywhere. Now watch this. If we say we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I would just add a little something to that verse. 
We're not saying there isn't sin. We're just saying, I'm not the one who committed it. I don't have sin. I haven't done anything wrong here. It's all my parents' fault. It's all her fault. Yeah, there's sin in this church, but it's just not me. If I'm somebody who says, I have no sin, I'm deceiving myself because, by the way, everybody else saw it. But watch this. If we confess our sins, to God is the idea here. We go to God and we talk about how sorry we are and we ask for forgiveness and strength. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he goes on to say, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. But I want you to focus in on verse 9. If we're willing to confess, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I find it interesting. Hopefully you've experienced this the same way. The more I grow in my faithfulness, the more often I beg for God's mercy. That doesn't make any sense. I thought that, you know, as I started getting better at things and thinking a little bit better, that I'd ask forgiveness less. But there's something about really seeking to get better that lends you to understand that only by the mercy of God can it be so. There's not a thing we've said today that you can do without the hand of God on your shoulders. Nothing. Not for long. I mean, anybody can do anything for a day or two. But for your life, there's not a thing we've talked about that you can do without God's grace showering down upon you and cleansing you and taking the mud off your boots so you can take the next step forward. Confess those sins to God. Repentance is not just for people we're about to baptize. It's for God's people. But we need to push this one step further. That's a beautiful thing to do. I hope that you ask God for forgiveness all the time and you do it with the right heart because you want to move forward, but that's not going to be enough. That's not going to be enough. When's the last time... You sat down with someone in your family. Maybe you've been married 50 years. Maybe it's your own 15-year-old. You're the parent. And you looked at them and said, we need to talk, which they know what that means. They're in trouble. I'm giving away a secret here. Sit them down, make them think they're in trouble. And then tell them, I'm so sorry. I wish it were different. I'm going to, I need your help. I want to make it different. There's not been a lot of prayer and Bible study in this home in the last few years. I'm going, I'm not going to say, let's change that. Don't do that. Don't do it. Don't do that. Hey, why don't we get, don't do that. I'm going to be different. I'm going to grow. I'm going to take responsibility for me. See what that does. I love the Proverbs. You've got to love the Proverbs. Go to Proverbs. Let's pick up a few of those at the end of this lesson. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. We'll pick up a few. My very, very favorite of all Proverbs, the one that I think about most often and use most often, will be read to you momentarily. Proverbs 3 is not it, but it gets us started. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 7. Proverbs 3 and 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That pride business gets us nowhere. Everybody else sees right through it, and it causes us to blame everybody else. But here we go. I'm going to skip right to it. Let's go to chapter 26 first. Let's move forward. Chapter, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. Chapter 26, let me give you one more of these, and then let's get to the good one. Proverbs 26 and verse 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool. Proverbs 26, 12. Than for him. But I need to add something. I'm glad I remembered to read that verse. I need to add something. I just want you to think about it. I'm going to read it again. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? 
There is more hope for a fool than for his family. Do you understand what I'm saying? The way that he lives his life, the humility that he possesses, the way he trains his family. The, uh, it could be a mother, a wife, and the way that she lives. It could be anyone. It shapes everything. And here we go. This is the one. I love it. Proverbs 28, 13. Gives you choices. Everybody loves choices. You get to choose here. Proverbs 28, 13. Here are your choices. We know we sin. Do your children know? Do your grandchildren know? That sometimes you sin, do they know that? What you're doing about it? This concealment business isn't going to get us where we want to go. Because it only breeds concealment, which as we know will not be good for anyone else. But Proverbs 28, 13 says this. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. I love that. It's my favorite. He who says, I need to tell you something, and I'm going to do better, and has nothing to do with you. I'm going to do better. This compassion comes in. This is why, young people, when you just own up to it, the punishments are shorter, and everything gets better faster, because that is the kind of heart that your parents are looking for, and it's true for us as well. So remember Proverbs 28, 13, and try that. If you're saying, you know what, I don't know that there's an area where I need to do that. Well, just give me another 40 minutes. We'll back up and start this whole thing over. Psalm 127, 1 and 2, and then we're done. Psalm 127, 1 and 2. For the rest of today, our focus is on the family. We'll talk about marriage in a little while, but I think some of the stuff you're going to see on marriage, I think you'll notice will help all relationships, I hope. And then tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about parenting. But let's pick this up again one more time. Unless the Lord builds the house. They labor in vain. Who build it? Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early or retire late or eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Look in Psalm 128, verse 1. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. For the rest of today, think about your part in that choice. And watch what happens to your family. Watch what happens to the church and the community and maybe this entire world. Thank you guys for your attention. I really appreciate you following along in the study. And we will be dismissed.